principles now have been dismissed due to illegality in the investment. Um, in some cases, this has been due to the language of the applicable investment treaty, which provides that the protection of the treaty shall be extended to cases made in accordance with host state law, or to, to investments, sorry, made in accordance with host state law. Um, several of those cases have relied not only on domestic law, but have also invoked international law. Um, in one case, this was because the host state law, civil law country, was deemed to incorporate uh, international law. Um, in others, it was because the treaty did not contain an explicit in accordance with host state law clause, but the tribunal deemed it essential that the investment comported with various international requirements, some legal and some policy-based. Um, now, one of the, um, to give you an idea of the, of the rationale of these cases, um, one in CESA versus El Salvador involved, um, the, in, in that case, the tribunal dismissed the case, invoked the principle of good faith, which it described as a general principle of, of law, um, the principle um, nemo auditor proprium turpitudendum dinum allegans, sorry, um, that the fraudster cannot benefit from his own misconduct, um, in, in international public policy, um, and the prohibition of unlawful enrichment. Wouldn't be right to let a claimant profit from his unlawful conduct. Um, now, the INSESA the case is interesting in that it really was um, what could be called a, a uni, case of unilateral corruption, right? And, and one of the difficulties in trying to find a, I'm going to say, a consistent approach in these cases, or maybe a consistent approach in, in policies about these cases, is because some acts of corruption might more proper, or more properly be viewed as fraud. In other words, the, in, in Ansesa, the investor lied about its qualifications in order to to qualify for the right to bid on a state project. It said it was very experienced. It had, a, it had 10 years or more of experience in running big you know, construction contracts, and therefore it was qualified to bid on the contract. That turned out to be a lie. So the investor lied. The state had no reason to understand that it was lying, and the state did not participate. Right. Um, unlike the bilateral cases where the investor gives a state official something in order to obtain or retain business. Um, um, now, much of the time, tribunals have not made this distinction, and um, sometimes even commentators have not made this distinction, but I would say that it, it, I, I think it's important in terms of how the case, or how a tribunal ought to deal with a case. Um, um, Anderson versus Costa Rica, again, there, there are a couple of handfuls of cases um, the rationale was that if you don't make an investment in accordance with host state law, you simply don't attract the coverage of the treaty. You're not entitled uh, to uh, uh, ask for the protections of the treaty. Um, uh, it's, it's true that the, one of the difficulties with the in accordance with host state law clauses cases is that they certainly are a convenient hook on which to dismiss the case and avoid uh, difficulties. Um, but some, some cases, some treaties don't have an in accordance with host state law clause. And it seems virtually inconceivable to me that you can suggest that you can make an, 
certainly it's not the intent of the treaty parties that you can thereby make an investment that is not in accordance with host state law. Um, one, of the, the, one of the ways that tribunals have tried to address this, I guess, lack of language is to say that if there is an in accordance with host state law language in the treaty, it's a jurisdictional objection and it's a jurisdictional dismissal um, on the part of the tribunal. If there is no such language, then it's a dismissal based on admissibility. It's not that the tribunal couldn't hear the case, but it's decided um, perhaps that it shouldn't hear the case because of the unclean hands doctrine. Um, I personally am not altogether convinced by this distinction, but that, that is fairly consistent if we're looking at consistency in case laws. That, that is a relatively consistent decision-making trend. Um, but the other thing that you see, you, you can see the, the desire of the tribunal to hang its, ha hang its hat, so to speak, on the language of the treaty. Um, but you also see um, distinctions made in order to get round what seems a draconian dismissal. So one of the questions in those cases is the timing of the uh, illicit behavior. Is it only at the making of the investment? And that's generally been the case. So you can't, um, you can't attain your um, investment by engaging in corrupt behavior. Um, but if you are renewing the investment, then perhaps that's different. And so you're looking only at the time. Um, there's tended to be a, a distinction made between petty versus grand bribery. Um, so is, if, is your investment unlawful if you failed to file, um, uh, file the, the local tax return that you needed to make on the date you needed to file it? So you should have paid $100 for a ministerial act uh, to be performed. You didn't do that. I mean, I mean that's you know, the fees you forgot. You didn't do it. Um, does that mean that you are forfeited the protection of the investment treaty because your investment is no longer lawful or was not lawful for a short period of time? Most of the time tribunals have said, oh, that's petty. That, surely that's not what we meant. Surely they did not mean to, for us to dismiss this case because of a petty act um, or a petty failure to abide by local investment laws. Um, um, uh, by not dismissing the case on the basis of jurisdiction, um, tribunals are able to make a more nuanced decision, um, right? They're more able to bring the, the, the issues out, potentially to bring the issues out in the open, to consider perhaps the relative acts of, of each party, um, you know, to at least ask themselves whether there's a difference uh, between a case where an investor has, let's say, paid money to obtain or retain business, or um, in the case where the investor has already paid $250 million to set up its oil uh, processing, uh, it, it, its oil platforms, um, and then was told that if it did not give another, uh, give a gift of $500,000, it would not, it would have its property expropriated, is that a difference? Um, should, should there be a different outcome in that case? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that I have a, a firm answer for that, but there's at least some notion that maybe there's a difference uh, in those cases. Um, the, uh, uh, so, uh, as I said, 
um, and based on kind of the, the uh, assessments, not just by me, but by uh, several scholars, it does seem that once a tribunal has decided to keep the case, notwithstanding allegations of corruption, then it tends not to address the corruption, or at least not to address it covertly, uh, or I mean to address it overtly. And that uh, seems a little bit uh, problematic. Um, and I think that tribunals could be, uh, I, I understand why they're a little bit cautious about extending their authority, but I think they could be a little bit more ambitious about extending their authority. Um, now we have three primary theories of arbitral authority. Uh, one is the contractual basis for arbitral authority, that it's derived from the contract between the parties, um, and that that's where the arbitral tribunal really gets its power. Um, this uh, theory permits the creation of the ideal of a national adjudication. Um, I uh, uh, have a sense that it's perhaps a little bit more theoretical than actual, but that is one of the, the main theories. Um, the adjudicatory theory um, uh, says the arbitral tribunal derives its authority from a state or states which through legislation or treaty law or both permits um, the tribunals to function. Um, and then you have the uh, duality of function or hybrid model, where, which is a mix of the preceding uh, tribunal's formation and jurisdiction is triggered by the consent of the parties um, and is, when permitted, affected by the consent of the parties. But the tribunal operates within a framework which permits that consent and gives legal effect to the decisions of the tribunal. Um, so at the risk of being called a legal positivist, um, which I'm sometimes called at home, uh, the duality of function model appears to be the most persuasive. Um, it also permits, and here maybe I'm being utilitarian, uh, the bridging of differences between commercial and investment arbitration in a way that I think can lead to a more coherent and consistent view of arbitral power. Um, so um, are there differences between commercial and investor state arbitration? Um, and in the latter category, are there differences between investment contract and investment treaty arbitration? And I, I think certainly the answer to this question depends on which theory you subscribe to. I mean, if you're a, a, a contractual <laughs> theorist, uh, then you see that the um, clearly that in commercial arbitration, the arbitral tribunal gets the authority between the actors to the arbitration, and there is less intersection, I guess, with the uh, judicial, um, it's, it, it's easier to say there's less intersection with a broader judicial function. Um, investor state arbitration, I think, is a little bit harder to make that argument because of the presence and activity of the state in the arbitration. Um, um, uh, uh, contractual, I, what I'll call investment contract arbitration, investment arbitration that does not involve an investment treaty but is based on an, uh, an investment contract is usually grouped with contractual arbitration. So you say that's a contract arbitration that's different from treaty arbitration, that's private arbitration different from public arbitration. Um, I must say I'm very skeptical of that distinction. Certainly there's a distinction based on, usually on the applicable law and that you don't have the investment treaty overlay. 
so you're not um, holding the state accountable for the same types of breaches. Uh, but insofar as the public interest is at stake, if you have an investment contract in which the state has entrusted the exploitation of important state resources to a private entity, that is an important public function that the state has performed in entering into that contract. So the mere fact that it's governed by private law or by a mix of private, um, of, of domestic contract law and possibly some international contract law, I think is insufficient to render it a purely pr a private arbitration. So my view is that should, I don't know, should probably fall a little bit more either in the middle or more on the public side of the ledger than is often um, the case. Um, so the, um, the um, and in fact, I, I will even at least attempt to argue uh, that the uh, private to private arbitral tribunals perform an important justice function that is part of um, the, as the international legal order and that they should not uh, be uh, hived off either from the responsibility that uh, international tribunals have to ensure the legitimacy of their functioning and to combat uh, corruption. Um, so kind of briefly to um, say a few words um, on arbitral duties um, to the extent they have been developed uh, to kind of uh, sum up the state of affairs. Um, the uh, there, there's really something of a divide still between commentators and tribunals and even among commentators about where the duties are. Um, so Louis Lamzen um, has set, you know, has put forth his theory. There's a duty to pursue corruption allegations when they arise, and that would include bribery, money laundering, or serious fraud. And the source of that duty would be to protect the enforceability of the award um, and to ensure the integrity of the institution of the uh, arbitral tribunal. And that would extend, in my view, to both commercial and investment arbitration. Um, good faith application of contemporary anti-corruption law, which forms part of the law that must be applied. Um, I think that's true um, in both commercial and investment arbitration, um, either as um, in commercial arbitration as part of municipal law, because most states have um, enacted anti-corruption norms, or as part of a transnational public policy that would be uh, likely applicable as a, as a mandatory rule. Um, and uh, secondly, in investment arbitration, um, you have a much more, I say, hmm, diverse uh, set of applicable laws in that usually international law is applicable. Um, uh, uh, so that would encompass international public policy, would encompass um, uh, uh, the international law often has renvois to domestic law when appropriate, so you can actually look at domestic legal principles. Um, uh, so I, I think in both of those cases, probably there is uh, applicable law that is uh, available to the tribunals. Um, um, whether these obligations arise sua sponte or not has been a, a matter of some debate. I think there's a duty to protect the integrity of the proceedings. 
Um, and you can find that duty in both implied powers and in inherent powers of the arbitral tribunal. Um, one of the things that haven't, hasn't um, been addressed so much by tribunals is to whom duties are owed. Are the obligations just to the parties, right? That's the uh, contractual principle. Um, um, are they also to the public of the host state? Um, um, and indeed to the international community as a whole. Now the notion that the obligation is due is owed to the public of the host state, I find quite interesting and potentially um, uh, useful uh, in terms of thinking of the state not as indivisible. Uh, so if you have a, a state official who has taken a bribe, um, you can say the rest of the public is interested in that. The fact that the state, and maybe part of the state is trying to protect itself, right? Maybe the state official or the state official's political friends um, are trying to protect itself, but maybe the rest of the public has an interest in uh, the matter being brought to light. And of course, these obligations are much more consistent with the idea of the arbitral uh, tribunal as a judicial or quasi-judicial organ. Um, uh, we still have some uh, discrepancies, um, notwithstanding the cases follow of, uh, notwithstanding the duty to create a consistent line of cases, um, still some divide between whether the dismissal should be a jurisdiction based on jurisdiction or on the basis of admissibility, some consistency if there's treaty language, less consistency if there is no treaty language on in accordance with host state law. Um, uh, the early dismissals have tended, uh, and the rationale in investment cases has tended to focus on investors' concepts, uh, on investors' conduct, sorry. So there's a very thin conception of the clean hands doctrine, I think. So you look at the investors' clean hands in this, um, um, and there's a little bit of a, let me say, a clumsy borrowing. You, you see the uh, reference to, you know, equity, so in, in equity, you know, the, the, the claimant in equity has to have clean hands. There's not uh, any recognition of the historical context in which uh, that requirement was uh, created. There's some reference to Roman law and the notion of clean hands in Roman laws to uh, ascertain that it's a civil law idea as well. Um, occasionally, there's a reference to clean hands as recognized in international law. Um, uh, and which it has been and also has not been. I, th I think it's a fertile topic for further uh, study. Um, but there isn't, um, the references to clean hands tend to be uh, as a basis for dismissal and not as a basis for developing the law of clean hands. Um, and it, uh, and does not, I guess, recognize, um, I think, more modern views about um, uh, proportionality and countermeasures and, and the like. Um, the, so the, I guess I would argue that, I'm trying to skip over a few things here. Oh, the, one of the kind of, and another issue that is not 
adequately addressed is the principle of state responsibility, right? And the tribunal's authority or duty to apply the law of state responsibility. So in the World Duty Free case, the tribunal said without really any, I'm gonna say explanation, that Daniel Arap Moy was acting in a private capacity, he's the president of Kenya, okay? but he's acting in a private capacity to take $2 million and therefore um, his act was not attributable to the state of Kenya. Um, so it's a little hard to know what can be attributable if that isn't attributable. Um, and, and this, by the way, I mean, I don't want to judge Guillaume was one of the, the arbitrators and Johnny Veter was one of the arbitrators. Like this is a great tribunal, but. I, this, I, I want to say, is consistent with this notion that you want to dismiss. You know, you kind of get rid of the case. You don't really delve into these uh, more uh, difficult, uh, kind of complicated issues. Um, but I think that's a real loss of uh, the possibility of fighting corruption. I think it's a misreading of principles of state responsibility. Certainly, um, there might be cases in which the acts are not attributable to the state. Um, query if even in those cases, the state has the responsibility to combat the corruption, right? So even if the state, that, that's why I referred earlier to the question about the importance of the activity in local government and local tribunals. If the state is actually fighting corruption, this was a, let's say, a bad actor acting for private gain, um, not abusing or you know abusing public authority and somehow hiding it from the public um, and from the government, then maybe the views about state complicity are different than if it really is a public actor acting, you, you might say, with the complicity of the state uh, apparatus. Um, uh, uh, and certainly that would be consistent I mean, We when uh, when judges make bad decisions, we say the state is responsible, there's a denial of justice. We don't say, well, the judge made a bad private decision, it's not the act of the state, that was a, a mistake that the judge made himself. Um, so uh, there's a little bit of, um, I, I wanted to say, there, there's one recent case, is really quite fantastic, where a tribunal actually heard the case, heard the allegations of corruption, and decided, and of course, you know, one of the things is what the tribunal should do at the end. The tribunal decided to um, suggest, uh, it did not want to reward the investor uh, for engaging in unlawful activity, but it also did not want to leave the state unjustly enriched, right? Because one, you know, in World Duty Free versus Kenya, you have basically Daniel Arap Moy has $2 million and the state of Kenya has the concession and the investor has nothing. Now, maybe we don't feel sorry for that investor, but somehow there seems to be a bit of inequity there. So in a recent case, the tribunal suggested to the respondent state, um, not that it return the money, didn't order it to return the money to the investor um, or the, the dispute, the, the amount that was awarded, but it, um, suggested that it should donate the money to a UN um, uh, agency that uh, uh, fights corruption, which I thought was, if I'm going to say, a fantastic, when I say just a practically interesting and creative result, 
Um, I, the fact that it's a suggestion perhaps uh, uh, skates over the question of whether the tribunal had any authority to order this. Um, and I'm, uh, I guess I'm happy to say that the state made the donation. Um, so that's a, an interesting and I think creative, uh, creative uh, approach. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, tribunals. Um, so commentators have been a little bit further ahead than tribunals about actually engaging with this exception in uh, creative approaches uh, to fighting. Uh, I guess to bringing to light issues of corruption and fighting uh, corruption. Uh, investment treaties could be more robust in what they call on tribunals to do. Um, recent investment treaties have corrupt anti-corruption chapters, several of them. The T, what we now, what's that called now? The CTPP, I don't know, the TPP, what we used to call the TPP, has an anti-corruption chapter. Um, supposedly NAFTA now has an anti-corruption chapter, but it's probably not gonna have an investment chapter. Um, but uh, it'd be interesting, th those, um, Corruption chapters have not been folded into the investment chapter as such. In other words, the investment tribunal does not have authority to hear allegations of uh, violations of those tree of those chapters. Um, but it would be interesting if, in the context of especially of an investment court proposed by the EU, whether something more creative in that uh, vein could be done. Um, I think for the integrity of arbitration. Um, hiding it under the rug is not helpful to legitimacy, and it is also not contributing to the global fight against against corruption. It's also not contributing to the development of uh, important principles of uh, international law. Um, so to go back to the um, kind of go back to the idea that uh, was expressed, maybe uh, even if obliquely, in the initial. A quotation I read you about the contribution to the rule of law. Uh, it seems to me that uh, maximizing um, the powers and duties of arbitral tribunals to combat corruption is, in fact, consistent with the rule of law uh, uh, because corruption is a practice that is simply antithetical uh, to it, and that arbitral tribunal as a an adjudicate as a part of the international adjudicatory order has an obligation to further the fight against corruption. So I will stop there.